we had one objective and that was to earn back the trust of both our employees and our guests. Our guests want to come here and they want to ski and ride. And we were staffed and we were ready to go. And really, it was just staying focused on the core operation. The lifts have got to run on time. Restaurants are open for business. And we did that. And it felt amazing for this team to just say, hey, we're back. The mountain's open. Come have fun at Stevens Pass. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host. Winchester. Hello again, Pacific Northwest. I love, love, love talking Washington skiing because there is nothing like the energy the skiers in that region stir up. I will get right to Stevens Pass. First, I know I say it at the beginning of every single podcast episode, but I cannot emphasize this point enough. If you are only listening to the podcast, you are missing a huge part of the storm. In fact, you are missing a huge part of the podcast. The heart of this whole operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Once you sign up, a minimum of 100 articles exploring the world of lift-serve skiing will hit your inbox every single year. That is also the fastest way to get the podcast. And you will find an article accompanying each interview that is loaded with additional context. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Stevens Pass, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the entire world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the United States and Canada, Profile Search International finds and negotiates with the right leaders for your team. You can reach out to them directly at profilesearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's profilesearch.com. Episode 133, Alan Galbraith, Vice President and General Manager of Stevens Pass, Washington. I see you, Washington State. I see your love for your local bumps, and I see how that translates to downloads to this podcast. This is the 145th podcast I've recorded since launching the storm in 2019. 145. And do you know what the number three episode is all time for downloads? Well, first is Vail Executive Chair Rob Katz. Second is former Altera CEO, Rusty Gregory. 
And number three is my interview with former Crystal Mountain president and CEO, Frank DeBerry. I cannot even begin to tell you how incredible that is when you consider who else has appeared on this podcast. The leaders of four of the five largest ski areas in the United States, the leaders of 12 of the 16 largest ski areas in New England, and the heads of 30 Icon Pass resorts. And yet, the top episode focused on a single ski area is not Jackson Hole or Big Sky or Vail Mountain, but a regional destination in Washington State. Now, Crystal is a terrific operation, and Frank was a charismatic leader. But the numbers for this episode far exceeded my expectations. And it could have been a fluke, but it wasn't. I know that because the ninth most downloaded storm skiing podcast episode of all time is the Summit Esnoqualmie episode with General Manager Guy Lawrence. Number 14 is Timberline Lodge ski area operator Jeff Constam. And the episodes with the leaders of Bogus Basin and Tamarack, both in Idaho, but well within that Pacific Northwest halo, are both in the top 20 all time storm skiing podcast episodes for downloads. So when I had the chance to book the leader of the oldest ski area in Washington State on the podcast, I knew it would find an eager audience, particularly after some well-publicized struggles at Stephen Pass during the 2021-22 to ski season. My guest today has been a big part of that turnaround, and she is committed to making sure that Stephen's Pass continues to be a jewel of the Pacific Northwest for the foreseeable future. Let's go. My guest today is the Vice President and General Manager of Stevens Pass, Washington. In continuous operation since 1937, Stevens Pass is the oldest operating ski area in the state of Washington. The resort sits on 1,125 acres of skiable terrain served by 12 lifts on a vertical drop of nearly 1,800 feet and averages 460 inches of snow per season. Stevens Pass is one of 36 ski areas that Vail Resorts owns in the United States. Prior to taking the top job at Stevens Pass last year, she spent time at Vail Resorts corporate headquarters in Broomfield, at North Star, California, and at Beaver Creek, Colorado. Ellen Galbraith is my guest. Ellen, so nice to connect. Always great to put a spotlight on the Pacific Northwest. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to start with a look back here at the 2022 to 23 ski season. Ellen, how did the season go for you at Stevens Pass? It was a great season. We opened on time. We had good snow during the winter. We had full day and night operations. And uh, looking back, we're really pleased. So for the previous ski season, you pushed it into May. Didn't quite make it this year. Was that a a matter of just the amount of snow you had? Was that just a special thing in 2022 to stay open into May? What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, so the season prior, we opened late and we had operational challenges during the year. And then a ton of snow in the spring. It really made sense to extend the season two years ago. This season, we opened on time. We had a good season and we had the pressure of the CARES chair replacement. Mm -hmm. So 
we made the decision to close at our scheduled closing date and got to work clearing snow and getting ready for that lift deconstruction the following day. What do you think for future seasons, Ellen? Is a May closing on the cards for Stevens Pass potentially in the future? Is that something you take year to year? It's something we're currently taking year to year, and I think it's always something we will be considering. It just, yeah, it depends on the season and, and how things are going. So you have a really passionate ski consumer there in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in Washington. Do you get a lot of requests for that long season, that late season, or are folks pretty much done by end of April and, and ready to move on to other things? It's a great question. I'd say it's a mixed response. Yes, we have a very passionate community up here. It's one of the amazing things about Stevens Pass. And there's a segment of our skier base that that wants to keep going um, just as late as we can. And, and some of them show up after we close and access the mountain and others, yeah, commented that they were ready to get on with some other things this spring. So it's it's a mixed group. Curious how Vail Resorts thinks about their Pacific Northwest portfolio as a whole. Obviously you're not that far from Whistler. You do have that international border to go over, but it is in Summit County, for example, Vail will close Keystone early April, and those passes then become good at Breckenridge. Is there some sort of similar thinking around when Stevens closes in its proximity to Whistler? Is is that a relationship that's considered in, in that operating schedule at all? You know, that's another great question. We've been making the decision independently down here. It really was factors related to this season and the lift construction that guided our decision this spring. But it's a great point. We are very close to Whistler Blackcomb and that resort stays open much later and it just adds value to our pass holders who are in the greater Seattle metro area. I'm curious about the relationship there. Do you find that a lot of your skiers use Stevens Pass as their quick hitter and then they take their longer trips up to Whistler? Do they kind of think about it as a unit like that? I'm starting to understand that relationship better. I'm I'm not sure I understand it fully. I think the border closures that were associated with COVID may have impacted some skier behavior in, in that way. I mean, I think we know it did. It was interesting this spring for me to read articles about Whistler that quoted Stevens skiers being up there. And I think it just speaks to the fact that the proximity is a real benefit that folks that are up at WB can come down and check out Stevens. And again, that our pass holder base has access to not only Stevens Pass, but also everything Whistler Blackcomb has to offer. You know, looking at Stevens Pass from an East Coast point of view, this is a pretty big ski area, right? 1800 vertical feet, you got some nice acreage, you got all these lifts and tons of snowfall. The thinking when Vail purchased Stevens Pass back in 2018 was really that it would be one of these feeder mountains to the larger destinations, right? It serves Metro Seattle and Washington folks really well, uh, but it's more of a of an area that people use as a home base and then ski at bigger places rather than something people travel to. I'm curious, as Stevens Pass has settled in on the Epic Pass, do you see folks coming from other regions just to check it out, just out of curiosity? I mean, from New England, maybe, or or the Midwest, some of these smaller markets where they don't necessarily have mountains of this size. And I would imagine you're not getting a lot of traffic, for example, from like Colorado, but maybe you are. I'm, I'm curious where Stevens Pass skiers are coming from. Is it still mostly local or are you seeing some travel? We are seeing travel. And yes, we have a huge skier base 
Stevens is home to a number of families and skiers, and this is where they ski and they come here every weekend or every powder day and, and we are their home base. And we absolutely are having visitors from outside of the region all run into people in the parking lot or on the lift and people will communicate with us through guest feedback or on social. They're absolutely coming to check out Stevens. And I think the pass has a lot to do with that. So we're We've been really happy to have them. Back to the 2022 to 23 ski season here for a moment, Ellen. I mentioned in the intro, Stevens Pass averages in the neighborhood of 460 inches of snow per year. Came in a little bit low this year, 335 inches. Elsewhere in the West, you were getting record snowfalls in Utah and around Tahoe, and your colleagues certainly benefited from that. How did the lower than average snow totals impact operations at Stevens Pass this year? Did you have a pretty good winter in spite of that? Did it make things a little more challenging? Talk about that snow total and and what impact that had on the season, if any. It was a good season. We had a powder day on opening day, which was December 2nd. Mm -hmm. I'll take that any year. (laughs) Um, You know, things were a little bit light in January, but Again, we had good, consistent snow throughout the season. We ended with a strong product. 335 inches is is a good year. And the skiing was fantastic. So yeah, there's there's benefits to the the huge storms that our our neighbors had to the south. I also was really feeling for, you know, coworkers and and past teammates as they were just trying to dig out in Tahoe and being really grateful for those seven, 12, 15 inch days that we had. You know, skiing around with your colleagues down around Tahoe, they were saying that not only did they get a lot more snow than normal, but it was a lot colder than normal. And they have a similar phenomenon down in Tahoe as you do up in the Cascades of this sort of heavier than usual snow, the Cascade concrete, Sierra cement. And that, and I, I realize there's a little bit of hyperbole in, in throwing those terms around generally, but they said in, in general, the snow we were getting in Tahoe this year, because it was colder, it was better quality, we weren't getting the refreezes. Was that was the same true up in the Cascades or were you still dealing with your typical sort of lower elevation conditions? Yeah, I'd say it was a mix. It was, you know, my first season back in the Pacific Northwest in about 20 years. We had some awesome powder days. The snow was fantastic and we were blessed to not have too many significant rain events. I think the biggest thing for us was we did lose Highway 2 for five days right in the middle of the peak holiday season, but the road was just impassable. Again, it was a really good season. So for those who are not familiar with Highway 2, talk us through this, Alan, because this is one of the distinctive features of Stevens Pass is just, it's in such a raw environment. And, you know, I drove up there in the summer and I was like, wow, this is some road. So talk a little bit about that highway and how much that highway and its limitations factor into operations at Stevens Pass? We are just intimately connected with Highway 2. It is one of three thoroughfares that crosses the state of Washington that's open in the winter. It's a two-lane highway, and you typically hit the snow line as you're getting pretty close to Stevens Pass. And so travel on the road is not for the faint of heart. And people who want to come to Stevens, like they set out in the morning and they are coming to Stevens Pass. Uh, So we shout out through the winter and and mean it sincerely, just the work that our WashDOT partners do to keep the road open. Mm -hmm. We're dependent on them to be able to, to run this business and provide skiing to our clientele. And yeah, the road is part of the adventure of Stevens Pass. And you said the state does all the maintenance on that road and you take over at the parking lot? Correct. We take over in the parking lot. So Crystal Mountain, 
little bit south of you, they were having some traffic issues. They also have a two-lane road that accesses theirs. And they switched to, not switched to, but they began to offer a complimentary bus hub in Unumclaw, which is about 40 miles away. Is this something that you've considered or be practical at all for Stevens Pass on those really high traffic days to have some kind of hub where maybe folks don't have to drive all the way up the pass? Yeah, we ran buses from the Evergreen State Fairgrounds in Monroe for several years. And then during COVID and in recent years, ridership on those buses really declined to Mm -hmm. where it just didn't make sense anymore. And dynamics of skiers when they're coming up, yes, it's something we will continue to consider, but people have been coming up in their cars. And thankfully, a lot of people do carpool. And we also are in a situation where the west side of Highway 2 can close. Again, we partner with the state to communicate the best we can when they're doing avalanche mitigation on Highway 2. And so that's another factor in access to the resort and Mm -hmm. any type of bus that would run to or from the west side. When you said you lost Highway 2 over the holidays this past year, Alan, was that both from the east and from the west? It was primarily from the West, but yes, it was closed. Conditions were just not favorable for vehicular traffic for several days right around the Christmas holiday. Washington shared some pretty incredible footage of their snowcat being out on the road. It was mm-hmm. literally a skating rink up here. And that picture really told the story of, of what was going on. It is common when the road shuts down, that we can get access from the east side more quickly than mm-hmm. from the west, just mm-hmm. because the slide paths are to the west of us. And so that gave us a chance that when we were seeing that the road was going to reopen, we were able to bring in employees from the east side and, and our team that lives and works up here year round. And we were able to dig out and get ready. And, and that way, as soon as the highway opened, when we got back open, we were back to full operations that first day. So it sounds like more than an avalanche mitigation issue, that particular five-day closure had more to do with the road conditions itself. Was it volume of snow? Were you getting some kind of crazy weather pattern? What was behind that? It was freezing rain and consolidation on the road. Mm -hmm. Highway 2 was a skating rink at the summit. And when that happens, Ellen, I have to imagine that creates a challenge for you and your team. I, I was browsing Twitter, as I often do, after they got that huge storm in Southern California in, I want to say, late February, early March. And Mountain High, the ski area outside of Los Angeles, had had made a post that, you know, we're sorry, but the road is closed today. Caltrans just can't get it open. And, and there were so many comments from people just throwing hand grenades, just saying, oh, I can't believe this. I What are you going to do about my pass? And I bought a ticket and all this stuff. And it's like, are you kidding me that state is not opening the road? Like you can't take a helicopter in. How does your, you and your team handle that when Highway 2 is closed? There's nothing you can do about it. You know that the state is is the only one that's equipped to do it, and they're doing everything they can to get it open because it's not just for Stevens Pass. I mean, like you said, there's three roads across the state. And what kind of challenge does that introduce for you and your team when that road is closed? And how do you handle that from a, a communications PR point of view? We are just transparent about what's going on. Thankfully, WashDOT is as well. You know, sharing pictures really helps. So we just tell the truth and tell the story. We are fortunate. We do have employees that live up here at the summit and come to work on those days when we are closed and de-ice the lifts and dig out the walkways and maintain LCAs and and really try to keep the mountain going and ready for when we have that opportunity to reopen. So often we kind of get that couple days in advance or maybe just one day in advance where we can get some folks up from the east side and we just 
just appreciate everything our partners do. And as soon as it's safe to open the road again, we're we're ready to to let people go skiing. You find with that transparency, Ellen, do people get it? Are they sometimes just reacting out of frustration and then they calm down once you explain, look, they're, you know, we would love to have you up here skiing too, but we just can't. Or is there in the age we're in, is there just a little too much performative social media complaining and, and sometimes you just can't get people to calm down? Boy, there are things we can control and, and things we can't. You know, I was a snowmaker for a long time and I didn't stress about the weather because I'm not in charge of it. So just take that perspective with these events when they happen here at Stevens. The weather is what it is and the roads are what they are. And yeah, we just focus on what we can control and feel really good about that. And thankfully have a an amazing comms team and they'll communicate with folks that are reaching out and we just stay focused on the mountain. So imagine if the road is your biggest issue you have to face in a season, you'll take that. You know, Ellen, this was your first full season as general manager and VP of Stevens Pass. We, we can talk about last season in a little bit or the season before, but as you reflect back on this season, what was your priority? What was your focus as you really settled in in that leadership role? Yeah, a couple things. I started a year ago today. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, thanks. Yeah. So that feels pretty good. You know, my first priority was to get to know the team here, the, the people that make this place what it is. There's just so much passion and tenure. And if you work at Stevens, because you really want to work at Stevens, and you care about this place. And that's just so evident. And so getting to know the team, and then we we just really rallied around our three priorities last year were being staffed, being safe, and focusing on our core business. We had one objective, and that was to earn back the trust of both our employees and our guests. Our guests want to come here, and they want to ski and ride, and they want their mountain. And we were staffed, and we were ready to go. And really, it was just staying focused on the core operation. The lifts have got to run on time. Restaurants are open for business. And we did that, and it felt amazing for this team to just say, hey, we're back and the mountain's open, and come have fun at Stevens Pass. So, Ellen, you are not a native of the Pacific Northwest, but this is a region that that means a lot to you. So let's go back and set this up here. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up skiing? And then how did you initially come to the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, thanks for asking. This line seems to get edited out sometimes. I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. Amazing. And my home mountain is Alaska. My parents were both skiers and they mm-hmm. put my sister and I on skis from before I can remember. So I was just really grateful to grow up skiing at a mountain like Alaska. And what was it like growing up in Alaska? You know, it's uh it's a gorgeous place, a little bit remote, a little bit disconnected in some ways, and less so now with the internet and everything, but a little bit disconnected from the rest of the United States, both physically and culturally. What was that like just growing up and growing up skiing in Alaska? Yeah, it was all I knew at the time. And just my fondest memories are from skiing at Alaska. I, my folks put my sister and I in the local race program. They Mm -hmm. thought it would teach us how to ski and it did. And to just tear up that mountain and be all over it all the time with a group of, you know, young kids just out to have a great time. There was a really incredible group of ski coaches at Alaska Ski Club when I was growing up, just men and women that were so passionate about the resort and skiing. And yeah, there's an independent spirit in Alaska. And I had some really incredible role models 
growing up and just have had the opportunity to go back a few times. And mm-hmm. it's been such a treat to reconnect with many of them and see how well that resort is doing. And yeah, and some different things in life brought me down here to the lower 48, but just mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of gratitude that that's where I got to grow up and that that's where a lot of my formative experiences took place. What did bring you down to Washington? Yeah. So I think on a personal side, my extended family is mostly in the kind of greater Seattle area. So every summer we came down here to visit grandparents and aunts and uncles and went to summer camp in Washington state. When I was a kid, I was a ski racer and that brought me out of the state of Alaska in high school. And when my time ski racing came to an end, I enrolled at the university of Washington to Mm -hmm. get to know my family better. So you're down at university of Washington and there's some skiing around there. So, so what brought you back into skiing when you were down there? Yeah. Some of my cousins are actually pretty big into rowing and mm-hmm. got me on the water. And I walked onto the University of Washington crew team and through the rowing community, met some skiers that skied at Stevens and they brought mm-hmm. me up here. And it's just amazing to get to experience this mountain. And then just totally randomly, I was at Costco in Shoreline visiting Mm -hmm. my grandmother and ran into an old teammate from Alieska. And he Mm -hmm. was the head coach at team Alpentel Snoqualmie. And he asked me to come work for him and come be a ski coach. And I hadn't been at UW for too long and I needed a job and met the head coach and and met the coaching staff and was a coach there at TAS through the rest of my time at UW. So Alpental is really unique, really distinct place. So you're working there and doing the ski school. When, when did you decide that you wanted to actually work in skiing? And then how did you make that happen? You know, I really enjoyed being a coach. You know, ski racing was what I knew. And so to, to turn around and, and get involved with the athletes that were on the team was just a natural fit and just a tremendous amount of fun. That same teammate of mine let me know that there were a bunch of Alaskans that were getting ready for the 2002 Winter Olympics, the speed events at Snow Basin. I had been thinking about taking some time off school to go be a part of the games and was hooked up through another former Alaska ski coach to work on the race crew at Snow Basin. And that really blew my mind, just that there was work putting on events of that caliber, you know, the connection to ski racing, everything that was happening with protection systems evolving through the change to parabolic skis Mm -hmm. that was taking place in the late nineties, early two thousands. It just was a really formative experience. It was, yeah, it set me, set me on a path that shaped the rest of my life. So you decided to make a career out of it based up in Washington, go do some stuff at snow basin. What happens next? Yeah. So some of the folks who were working at Snow Basin had come from Beaver Creek, the Birds of Prey World Cup course. The inaugural event was in 1997 in preparation of the 99 World Championships. And so my immediate foreman at Snow Basin, a guy named Ron Rupert, was amazing to work with. And I called him up as I was finishing school and asked him for a job at Beaver Creek. And he hired me and brought me onto the race crew there. So take us through your time at Beaver Creek and then ultimately the rest of your time at Vail Resorts. Yeah. So started with the race department. I was a part-time seasonal race crew for eight years in association with the World Cup primarily. My second season there, I also started grooming part-time. So just wanted to learn more about snowcats and how all that Mm -hmm. works. In 2011, when Beaver Creek was awarded the 2015 World Championships, the opportunity came up to apply to be the race department manager. And I knew that if I could be in that job, that it would allow me to be the chief of course for the women's events. 
-hmm. in association with the 2015 World Championships. And so I was extremely fortunate to be given that opportunity and spent the next four years both running the race department and working with that team and the whole mountain to build the Raptor women's venue and prepare for the World Championships. When that was over, I was promoted into a snow surface role and spent the next four years learning a ton about snowmaking and mm -hmm. primarily being responsible for, for building that mountain each fall and then doing the, the dirt work and maintenance that's needed in the summer. So in the fall of 2019, I had the opportunity to apply to be the mountain manager at North Star California and North Star and Beaver Creek, you know, they have a lot in common just in, in guests and guest service and just always been interested in going to North Star and had a conversation with my husband and he was up for the move and up for the change. And so was it North Star for two seasons? After that time, I had the opportunity to apply for a chief of staff role. I did have ambition to become a GM someday. And I really felt like I needed to understand better how our business runs and, and all the things that happen even further behind the scenes uh, in our central teams and spent a year in that chief of staff role prior to coming here to Stevens Pass. So Beaver Creek and North Star, you're right. Those two resorts have a lot in common. And I, and I want to pause on this grooming bit you mentioned here at Beaver Creek. I mean, that's a ski resort where that's a big part of their identity, right? Obviously they have birds of prey and, and they have some really terrific off-piece terrain there, but the Beaver Creek experience is really about the grooming, right? So what did working on that crew early in your career, what did that teach you about the importance of grooming and, and how did that kind of program you to, as you went into your other roles, to really understand how to do it the best and, and, and what the guests are looking for, because that team there at Beaver Creek is just one of the best anywhere. And North Star is similar. Yeah, just a ton of passion about the product. And it comes from the people who run machines and the work that's done in the off season and just, hey, if we can do it better, let's try to do it better. Just continuous improvement. And, you know, I ended up in a cat because my job with the race crew at the time or my responsibilities was to just help do snow depth and determine how much snow we were spreading across the course to be as efficient as possible. And when I was trying to watch how our cat operators were shaping the hill, you know, I'd kind of say to myself, oh, I think they're going to do this, that, and this. And then they would do something totally different. Uh -huh. And I went, okay, I'm not thinking about this the way a cat operator thinks about it. So uh -huh. I tried to just learn and I spent a ton of time riding in machines. And then one day the manager joked that, you know, I probably knew how to run one. And I said, I don't, but I'd really love to learn. And he, he put me in a machine the next season. Yeah. It was really just about gaining perspective and think that has shaped my career from if I don't understand something, I try to go out and learn about it. So appreciated that opportunity. And yeah, you, you don't meet people at ski areas that are trying not to do a great job. Everyone's mm -hmm. trying to do a great job wherever they are. And just an amazing team at, at both resorts that really care about what they're doing. So you spent a lot of time on the ground, just learning all these different things, the snowmaking piece, the grooming piece, the race programs, you know, the administrative piece. Once you got to Stevens Pass and had the opportunity to run your own mountain, how has all that informed your leadership style and the way that you approach managing the mountain as a whole and putting all those pieces together? Oh boy, man, being here is just a, a dream come true to mm -hmm. build a career first in ski racing and then in mountain and resort operations and to be able to come back to the Pacific Northwest and be a part of the future of this mountain. It's just such a privilege. Yeah. And I think I just, you know, we have a team of experts here and I contribute where I have something to offer, but I also, again, am just learning so much 
from our, you know, the head of our ski and ride school and the head of our food and beverage operation. And we're small enough that I get to be involved and understand and and feel and experience what's going on. And Stevens is just a really special place and a really special part of this portfolio. So you have to work at a lot of really iconic resorts, a lot of important resorts and and learn a lot over a couple of decades. It sounds like my understanding is that you volunteered to come to Stevens Pass during the 2021 to 22 ski season. So take us back to this, Ellen. What was going on at Stevens Pass and what made you step up and say, I need to be part of that? Yeah, uh, I think I'll build on what Tom mentioned earlier of just there were some operational challenges at Stevens Pass two years ago and they were well publicized. So I was aware of what was happening and that the season was off to a rough start. One of my oldest friends lives in Leavenworth and has for a long time. And he, you know, sort of been offering his take on how things were going. And when I was in my role working for our corporate team, I was working remotely the entire time. So Mm -hmm. I was doing my job from my house in Colorado. And I just got off a call with my boss one day and like, I called him right back after a conversation and said, Hey, I can do this from Stevens. Can I just go? Can I just Mm -hmm. show up? I just felt like was in a position to get out here, be an extra set of hands and just show up when we have teammates that were in need. And I was really grateful that he said, yes. So got on a plane Took a couple of days because the road was closed to actually make it out here, but always cared about this place. And I think we all care about our coworkers around the, the enterprise and just felt like I was in a position to help. In what way specifically, Alan, what, what did you think that you could offer that Stevens Pass was missing at the time or, or what were the specific problems that you thought that you could contribute to? Yeah, I just came with the mindset that I'm I'm another set of hands and I'm another tool in the toolbox. And so when I showed up, I went quickly to Vince, our mountain manager's office and walked in with my notebook and said, what can I do to help? And mm-hmm. he gave me a list of support he needed from vendors and, and our central teams. And they gave me an office to work out of and I got to work calling people I knew and and getting things in motion to support this team. You know, they knew what needed to be done. I just was able to help expedite expedite a few things on on Vince's list. So yeah, did some work behind the scenes to just get things moving for this team wherever I could. And then when I felt like I'd kind of done that the best I was able to, there was some work to do outside. And I said, mm-hmm. where do you want me to go? Got to spend a couple of days shoveling with crews at Stevens and get to know some folks and just hear their stories and how things have been going. And it was really nice to just connect with this team during during a time of need. So you're right. It was well publicized. There were some staffing issues at Stevens Pass. There were some operational issues. It's one thing to watch this from across the country, Ellen, but being on the ground there, as you're there every day, just putting in this work and getting to know everybody, was there an inflection point? Was there a moment when you said, okay, this is going in the right direction now Stevens Pass is turning into what it should be. I think the appointment of Tom Fortune, when Tom came on board, the focus Mm -hmm. was moving forward Mm -hmm. and the team was so eager to just move forward. We needed more staff. We needed more help. We needed more people here to run lifts and be part of this team. And what Tom represents just as a longtime member of this team and someone who understands this community and cares about this community. I think he was this signal that things were going to get better right away. 
So you're working with Tom and, and Tom's been on this podcast recently. He now runs Heavenly and oversees Vales Tahoe region with North Star and Kirkwood. And he spent 20 years at Stevens Pass and, and has been gone for longer than that now, but he's been in the industry for a long time. As someone who at the time was an aspiring general manager, Alan, what was it like working with Tom? And what did you learn from him about running a mountain and running Stevens Pass in particular that gave you the confidence to step into this role? It was actually the first time I met Tom was being here. I, of course, knew who he was and I knew his history with Stevens. And and so one, it was a pleasure to be around him. And, and two, it's just immediately apparent how much he cares about our company, about Stevens, about the people who are here. And like he said, this team knows how to run this mountain and just needed some help getting through a few hurdles to keep staffing going and just get things back on track as quickly as possible. And I think Tom's historical just understanding of the mountain and different options to maximize terrain as we were just rebuilding the team as quickly as possible was, was just really welcome by everyone plus his his reputation he just he is who he comes across as and so it's just great to see him just jump right in and and help and really support the team that was on the ground here so it was a real pleasure and it's been great to stay in touch with him and get to know him better over the last year so Tom did quite a few things that were a little more subtle. One of those was bringing back the Stevens Pass Bluebird. Tell us about the Bluebird, Alan, and the significance of that symbol to Stevens Pass. Boy, I don't think I can do it justice. SPKA and the Bluebird are just inherent parts of this culture, and they have special meaning through the people they represent and the history of of like how the Bluebird came to be. There's a lot of emotion and a lot of memories that are cherished here at Stevens Pass mm-hmm. and that slogan and and that symbol are a representation of this community and and so i think his authentic connection to those things and him being able to lead so genuinely through what that means to him is that emotional connection with our staff and our guests and it was really timely and it was again just totally authentic and and totally calm and yeah it's just a privilege to be a steward of this mountain and this place and those things that are special about its past you know, I appreciate the decision, or I don't even know if it was a decision, but that that, that had faded as a symbol prior to your tenure at Stevens Pass. But do you have a sense of why the ski area had turned away from that, the Bluebird, for a few years? I don't. I'm not familiar with why why the resort moved away from it for a time, but very happy to have it back. So Tom was always going to be an interim leader at Stevens Pass. He had his job at Heavenly Still and that whole region to take care of. When did you realize that the opportunity to run Stevens Pass would be available to you? And what made that job appealing to you? Yeah, I didn't consider it at first. Certainly not while I was here. I was just here to help and and just here to show up. And after going back to Colorado and having some time to process and really I, I had made a commitment to my boss to be in my previous role for a longer period of time. And it just had a few interactions that kind of made me consider it a little bit more. And again, brought it up with my husband, who's who's been out here several times to ski before we moved here. And ever since 
Stephen's past had become part of the Vale family. It has been in my mind of just, my gosh, could I continue my career at this company that has been nothing short of amazing to me and mm-hmm. have the opportunity to go home and be mm-hmm. closer to family. And just with everything that happened, yeah, I had a conversation with my boss and had his blessing to go for it and went, I don't want to wait. I feel like I have something to offer right now. And, and I don't want to wait for the opportunity to be a part of this team and, and be a part of what's next for Stephen's past. So as far as skiing goes, you, you're very well-traveled. You grew up skiing at Alaska, spent a long time at Beaver Creek, spent some time in Tahoe, and as you said, spent some time in, in Washington during college skiing there. Having worked at all these iconic places, Alan, and I'm sure visited even more, what is it about Stevens Pass that's so special? Because if you stack it up against any of those places I just named, it's smaller by skiable acreage. It's smaller by vertical drop. It's take Elias out of it, but it's a little bit harder to get to just from, you know, there's, there's not that many places to stay up there. So what is it about this little ski area in the middle of Washington that from your point of view is just so special? Yeah. I mean, my time at North Star and Beaver Creek were incredible. And and I was part of some really amazing teams. And I'm so grateful for those experiences. And I think what drew me to Stevens was just the mountain. We are, I mean, our name is Stevens Pass. We are at the, the crest of the Cascades and the heart of the Cascades and the skiing experience and the snow. And that the resort is really centered entirely around the ski experience brings me back to my roots. It feels like home, like growing up at Alaska and had this amazing, amazing time working right at some of our iconic resorts. And I think Stevens is iconic as well, just in a different way. When you first skied Stevens, when you were at University of Washington, it was a very different place without the high speed lifts and such that define it now. Curious from your point of view of having skied there around the sometime in the 90s and then and then having come back and now working there, what is the same from a cultural point of view and and how has the place changed? And, and overall, how cool has it been to watch that evolution of Stevens Pass over the years while it still maintains that essential character? Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, it felt the same when I came back. I had had the opportunity to drive through in the summer and say hello to folks and just connect more personally with the team. But I remembered the landscape. I remembered the powder. I remembered the views and the ridgelines. And those memories were strong. And yes, some lifts have been upgraded and things like that. But just that essence of Stevens was largely what I recalled. So it's a place that you appreciate a lot and understand. You said something important earlier, Ellen, and that was that Stevens Pass had lost skiers' trust the previous season. And, you know, as you said, that that was well publicized and and there was a, a petition out for you know, a variety of things, asking some officials to take some action on terrain not being available, et cetera. It seems as though Vale has gained a lot of that trust back. As the leader of Stevens Pass, how do you retain that trust now that you do have it back again? How how much of a focus is that for you? And how do you approach that? How do you make sure you do that? It's a huge focus. And it's great that we did it last year, but we have to do it again next year and the year after that and the year after that. We cannot go backwards in any way, shape or form. And we just have to do this over and over and over again. What do you think Stevens can still do better, Ellen, as you look to the future? It's a big place and 
you always got to be looking ahead. So, so what, what would you, what's your focus in the future? What, what would you like to improve still? Yeah. Going to keep an eye on just our core central operations out on the Hill. And, and like I've said, we have an amazing team and if we continue to be staffed, we'll continue to be fine. Very quickly, my attention turned from the mountain to the parking lots. Parking has been an issue at Stevens Pass since 1937. And it drew me off the Hill and, and into our lots. So I could just better understand the ingress and feel the pace and the rate at which people get here in in the morning. And our arrival experience has a huge part of my attention and and that of my team as well. What's your thinking there in broad strokes here, Ellen? Do you you have some big ideas that you can share about how you would like to improve that experience? Yeah, I think we've talked about just what a priority it is as an enterprise that we prioritize the passholder experience and what we're doing with ticket sales to ensure that our passholders have the best possible experience. And so that is front of mind every day. So we need to ensure we're doing the best job we can with the parking that we have available right now. And yes, we're looking at opportunities within our existing lots and looking at opportunities that are nearby to the resort, but it's a big part of Stevens Pass, and it has a lot of my focus and attention. So like most ski areas in Washington State, you're on National Forest Service land. That often impacts the amount of parking that can be built. Do you have the ability to build more lots or expand the current lots? Does Stevens own any of that land at the base? What's that whole potential look like down there? Yeah, the parking immediately adjacent to the resort is on Forest Service property, and Mm -hmm do have the option to make some modifications to our existing lots. They're sensitive projects, they're complex projects, making mountains flat is challenging. Just there's so many considerations that they're projects we would need to take on with so much care. So that work is underway to evaluate what our options are there. We do own some land that's pretty close to the resort and also actively looking at what options could be nearby. And where is that? Is that something you can tell us? Sure. Yeah. We have a parcel about two miles to the east of the resort in an area mm-hmm. called Yodelin. How big is that area? How, how many cars would that potentially hold? We can currently park 200, 250 cars down there, literally in the process of reviewing what our opportunities could be to potentially increase parking in that area. We're just at the very early stages. So more to come on that one. So many Vail resorts have gone to a partial paid parking plan over the past several seasons. All three resorts in Tahoe will go to one for the first time. Next season, uh, Stowe and Mount Snow are two in the east to do it. I'm not sure if you have any paid parking right now or if that's something you're thinking about. We don't at the moment. Stevens Pass has in the past. And so, yes, it's something that I think every ski resort is considering, as you talked about. And like you mentioned, other resorts are rolling out paid options. Currently, we are looking more into carpooling and just encouraging people to carpool. And this is such a sensitive area. And I think it it matters a lot to our guests how we manage our parking moving forward. And so I'm just trying to be really careful and really considerate about what our plans may be going forward. So Ellen, you mentioned earlier that one of your priorities is making sure that you're staffed up. And that was, from my understanding, a big thing that was contributing to the Stevens Pass operational issues in the 21-22 ski season. In the interim, Vail Resorts raised the employee minimum wage to $20 per hour for this past season. As we've said many times in this podcast, Stevens Pass is a little remote. And if you need to get there, 
you need to drive from somewhere. So did that $20 an hour wage translate to being fully staffed this season? Yes. Was it sufficient that you were fully staffed or were there still some holes? Is, is, do you think the problem is solved? Yes, we were fully staffed this season, much to everyone's relief. $20 made a big difference. The, it's a great wage around here. No, it won't solve every problem, but it's just such a huge step forward and really set us all up to be in a position to staff for this winter. And like you said, we are a more remote ski area and it's a commitment to get here. So something we will just be continuing to, to put effort into and, and to pay attention to in the seasons to come. So most of your employees do have to live on one side or the other of the past, but it seems like Stevens has been working on some new employee housing options over the last few years. So talk about those efforts, Ellen, what your employee housing situation looks like now and what the potential is to build that out long term. Yeah, so we have about 30 beds up here at the summit, mostly a variety of cabins that have Mm -hmm. been at the resort or are repurposed buildings from um, previous iterations of Stevens Pass and really grateful. There's a community of employees that work up here that really take care of the place when we we have these massive weather events. We do have some more beds nearby. We have a property down at Yodelin that needs a little bit of work, but actively working on trying to get that back online. So in addition to the 30-ish beds we have right now, we have the opportunity for kind of almost another 30 between the summit and Yodelin, which would be a significant improvement. And then in the winter, we run shuttles to the resort from 60 miles in either direction. Oh, wow. Yeah. The Western route starts in Monroe and comes Mm -hmm. up the West side and the Eastern route starts in Wenatchee. And so Mm -hmm. we have housing along that route. We do have some properties that are a little bit further off the bus route and really just trying to continue to secure housing. So if people don't have cars, they have a way to get to work. And so looking for more opportunities that are within walking distance to where we have existing bus stops. And how about for guests, Ellen? This is not a Stevens Pass specific issue. Really, most ski areas in the state of Washington don't really have much in the way of accommodations directly at the base. What do you have available for guests? And over time, is there potential to build more? Yeah. So what we have is one of the coolest ski in, ski out RV lots in the country. And so Mm -hmm. There has been a long tradition of RVing up here at Stevens Pass, just generations of families that have raised their kids and, and been a regular part of, of the RV lot community. It's been great to have that back in a good place this winter. So if you have a home on wheels, come on up and come spend some time with us winter or summer. But like you said, we are 100% on forest service land up here at the mm-hmm. summit, and it's not a part of our current plan, nor do we really have the infrastructure to support any type of commercial lodging up at the summit. So there is a lot going on in the way of projects at Stevens Pass, and Vail has put in a number of new chairlifts since purchasing the resort five years ago now, and you're working on one this summer. So tell us about the new Keras chair, Alan, what we're getting, what it's replacing, and where you're at in that process. Yeah, so the original 1964 riblet double has been entirely removed at this point. It is in pieces down in the numbered lots and finding new homes for parts that still can provide value to other ski areas. And we're really excited that we're going to have a brand new fixed grip quad sky track, almost in exactly the same location as the previous lift. What is going to be different? Is it it slightly different top or bottom terminals? You said almost the same. So is there, what are the differences going to be? 
Yeah, so the base terminal is just slightly to the north, so a little bit closer to the PCL Lodge, and then mm -hmm. the top terminal is going to be just a little bit to the south or closer to the bottom of Double Diamond. Mm -hmm. And that was just for better skier flow connectivity, a little less walking from the lodge? Yeah, you know, that lift is immediately adjacent slash on top of our water plant, which mm -hmm. is vital to our operation. And then at the top, for those who have ridden that lift, it's a large timber structure that mm -hmm. elevated that lift for the unload. Mm -hmm. And so to get the new lift kind of out of the hole that's left when you take all that uh, infrastructure down, it really made sense to just move the lift a tiny bit in its alignment. Will the lift have a loading carpet? It will not. So take us into this decision here, Ellen, because this is a, it's not a super long lift, but it's 824 feet of vert. It's about 2000 feet long, I believe. Did Vale consider a high speed lift for this location? And ultimately, why did they decide that fixed grip was going to do the job? You know, a fixed grip just makes the most sense for this terrain. Let's say there's kind of two main user groups on CARES. One is you're headed up to Double Diamond to go to the mm -hmm. backside. Yep. And so this fixed grip quad will feed that fixed grip triple. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, people are lapping this terrain. Our local race team uses it a lot. And there's some great skiing under the lift and around the area. But for the volume of terrain that it serves, a fixed grip is appropriate. So CARES, as you mentioned, had some miles on it, dated to 1964. Amazingly, not the oldest lift on the mountain. That would be Seventh Heaven, a riblet double dating to 1960. Take us into the decision, Alan, and, and I realize the decision was made probably before you were general manager. Vale certainly announced it just shortly after. So, so what went into the decision to replace and upgrade CARES before Seventh Heaven? Yeah, great question. Seventh is older. It's 1960. It also had a lot of work done in 1996. It had a motor room mm -hmm. replacement. So seventh has seen more maintenance and it's in good shape. It also serves more advanced terrain and a mm -hmm. higher level skier. So that lift is is in a good position to keep running and and cares hasn't seen the same type of rebuild or anything like that through its lifespan and it serves intermediate terrain which means we have a wider range of skiers that are using that lift and mm -hmm. so the upgrades that come with this new machine that's being installed is going to be a real benefit for our guests Seventh Heaven is a pretty short lift, less than 500 vertical feet. It sounds like you're happy with Seventh Heaven. Have you given any thought to what could replace that long term, or is it just not something you thought about yet? You know, we've talked about it a little bit and current thinking is it would likely be something very similar. The top of that lift is a side hill with a very narrow unload area. And so one, it doesn't have cat access to the top two, let alone a road. So it's, it would be an even more challenging project to undertake than CARES. If we were to expand the footprint at the top of that lift, the handwork that would need to be done to maintain it could lead to delays in opening and people People are pretty hungry to get up seventh heaven when it's a powder day and it's time to go skiing. And so again, just the train at services at present, if we're to talk about replacing it long-term, I think it might be another double. Do you think the seventh heaven is in the right place? Is there a world where seventh heaven lands where it does now, but it loads down on hog heaven or somewhere down there. So folks could lap rock garden and some of these other runs, as well as the, the runs that they can lap now, the double diamonds off it definitely part of the conversation. Definitely some opinions out there about some different places it could be. And when that lift gets closer to the point of that conversation happening, it'll, it'll be exciting to explore those options. 
Right, let's talk about the double diamond Southern Cross lift because this is a really interesting machine, Alan, and it follows a pattern that I feel has fallen out of favor with the lift engineering crowd over the past couple of decades. We don't really see them much anymore. So this is one super lift really that goes up and over. So on the front side, it's double diamond. On the back side is Southern Cross. Very, very long lift, mile long or more. It dates to 1987, so it's kind of in that zone where you could think about replacing it. Sundance in Utah just replaced their long up and over lift with two different lifts. Just curious in general, Ellen, and your thoughts on Double Diamond and Southern Cross and whether that's still doing what you need it to do, if you've talked about potentially replacing that, and if so, would it be one or two machines? Yeah, it's a great question. and I'm glad you brought it up. It is a fascinating machine. Something that's interesting to know about the machine is that the drive terminal is the bottom of the double diamond side, and that's mm. where we have access to PUD power. Oh, okay. And there is no power at the bottom of the backside. And so, mm. yes, our thoughts and conversation and long-term planning just about improving the experience at Stevens Pass include the backside. It's a mm -hmm. place that's so fun to ski and really popular with our guests. But when you think about the design of that lift, it makes a lot of sense that it was built the way it was. As you've probably seen, there's actually an enormous amount of power on the backside with the Bonneville lines that are back there, but we can't tap into them. So uh, that's a big consideration when we look to the future and what could be next for Double Diamond Southern Cross. So Jupiter then, which is also on the backside, that then I'm assuming is a top drive as well? Yep. So if you were to upgrade Southern Cross, that's a long lift for a fixed grip would you be looking to go detach back there or or you or is there a character piece to having that fixed grip on that particular terrain conceptually speaking yes it would be amazing to have a high speed lift for southern cross like i said people love to ski the backside and so having another high speed lift service that terrain would be terrific and i think we need to work through what does a power service look like to really think about what the future of those two lifts will be? So looking long-term, Stevens Pass most recent master plan, which according to the document I'm looking at was in 2007, there's three potential expansions outlined in this document. There's Grace Lake, which is lookers right of Brooks and would be a handful of intermediate and black diamond trails. And then on either side of CARES, there are new lifts, one called Northern Exposure, one called the Cats, both about the same length or maybe a little longer than CARES, both serving intermediate to advanced terrain. Just curious what Vale's current thinking is about those potential expansions and if you do have a new master plan underway. Yeah, great questions. You know, when I got here a year ago, I bored through the master plan. It was one of the first things I did. And mm -hmm. like you said, there's some really interesting opportunities in there. And then like we've been talking about, my focus for the last year has really been on the immediate operation of the resort. So now that we're through last season, yes, we are starting to look at and work on what is next for long-term planning at Stevens Pass. Those train expansions are considerations. Like we've talked about, there's a lot of lift upgrades that are front of mind as considerations. And another one that's on my mind out in that Grace Lakes area is the expansion of mountain biking for mm. our bike park mm -hmm. and what we offer here in the summer. So nothing to share immediately other than, yes, we are diving back into the long-term plan, but just way too soon to be talking about it. So I'm curious about how you put this puzzle all together. 
Ellen, as you consider potential expansions, either off the front or off the back, and and we've been talking about parking and some of your restrictions there and lodging and some of your restrictions there, is this a matter of you can't really expand the ski terrain until you figure out the parking lot piece? Are those things directly dependent on each other? Or would an expansion be more about giving the folks who currently come to Stevens Pass more room to spread out? Just talk us through that whole dynamic and how all those things work together. It's all connected. Like we've talked about, the arrival experience at Stevens Pass has always been a challenge and can still be better. And I think we have an immediate opportunity to to make it better. So continuing to focus our efforts there. And at the same time, really evaluating and exploring what does parking look like? What do lift upgrades look like? And then, yeah, what should we be looking at for terrain expansion? It's a lot to consider. So just taking it one piece at a time right now. One of the interesting things about the Pacific Northwest is it's one of the few regions of the country where a substantial number of ski areas still have no snowmaking at all. They just have that reliable enough snow. What does Stevens Pass current snowmaking footprint look like, if any? And long term, what's your thinking around snowmaking? Yeah, we have two hydrants and two handguns. Okay, so minimal. It's minimal. It's uh, I have to share snowmaking was a really, really big part of my life before coming to Stevens Pass. And okay. so it's been a big change. It does allow us to do things like get open early with a jib park. That was a mm-hmm. really fun way to kick off the season. We, okay. we brought up to ride rails on our rope tow, which is so much fun. And we've done a lot of dirt work in the base area to ensure that we can load lifts once we have the natural snow to ski our train. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's always a consideration. And I think I may have mentioned that we have a water plant here at Stevens and we mm-hmm. generate our own drinking water. And so so water management, like at other ski areas, is just critical to these these questions. Has there, and again, I appreciate that you've only been there for a year, but has there been a time when lack of snow has impacted Stevens, or is it is this just one of those places that's positioned in the right place in the world where the snow has been consistent since 1930, whatever, and you're not going to get the return on investment if you do try to put in this big snowmaking plant? We do not take our snow for granted, Mm -hmm. not an inch of it. Yes, it has impacted us, whether it's opening or there have been some seasons that have been really tough. And so thankfully, it's likely to keep raining in the greater Seattle area, greater Pacific Northwest, uh, down at the water level. And so we're grateful that means snow for us a lot of the time. But no, it is in the back of my mind and is something we will continue to explore. One unique thing about Stevens Pass for a more remote ski area, usually you see this more in city adjacent ski areas like Summit of Snoqualmie, but is the pretty substantial night skiing operation that you have. So talk about night skiing and its importance to Stevens Pass culture. And ultimately, if you would like to expand that footprint at some point. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up night skiing. I mean, bottom line, night skiing is fun and it's a Mm -hmm. huge part of our resort. We have tons of capacity to welcome people here, not just at night, but in the afternoon. And so our footprint is largely set on the front side. What we have is the opportunity to improve that experience. Mm -hmm. We've been upgrading lights and we can continue to upgrade lights and just make that experience even better at night. But You know, like you said, there are a lot of skiers in the Pacific Northwest and coming up in the afternoon or in the evening, you know, you can ski for a long time and not start Mm -hmm. till one o'clock or three o'clock. And Mm -hmm. it's just really the future of inviting more people to come ski and ride is, is to come in the afternoon and to come in the evenings. 
All right, Ellen, let's uh, let's wrap up today with a chat on the Epic Pass. You know, there's there's the Epic and Epic Local Pass, and, and those are the ones that most folks think of, but there's quite a few niche products. And Stevens Pass, in fact, has not one, but two of its own Epic Passes that are good just at that mountain. And it's one of a handful of Vail resorts where that option is available. So there's a, basically an unlimited pass, and then there's a select pass that's not good on holidays and peak weekends. Why is it that this pass has survived for Stevens Pass skiers when you can't go buy a pass for you know just Beaver Creek, for example, or or just Park City? So why does Stevens Pass still have its own passes? Yeah, great question. If you ski at Stevens Pass, you can really pick the product that works for you. Like I've talked about a number of our guests, this is their home mountain and mm-hmm. they know when they come and they know what they're looking for. And so if you're a dedicated night skier and you're really not interested in coming here in the morning or on the weekends, the select pass is a great deal. And then if you do ski here on the weekends or your kids are in our multi-week programs or you're a powder hound and it doesn't matter what day of the week you are going to come up and you're going to take in that, that two feet of snow that we called in the morning, then the premium pass, you know, is unrestricted. And so those are great products that really serve our community really well. And then yeah, for less than a hundred dollars, you can upgrade to an Epic local pass and um, have all the benefits throughout the enterprise of resorts that are on the local pass. And I believe that includes 10 days at Whistler Blackcomb with restrictions. But, you know, like we talked about, if you want to head up there in April and and go skiing, it's not that far away. And, and it's just a great deal for folks in our community. So it's really interesting for me as an observer to watch how different ski areas and different operators have handled some of the challenges of multi-mountain passes. And I think the distinction between Crystal Mountain and Stevens Pass is really interesting. They're both about the same distance from Seattle. Both seem to be susceptible to the same set of pressures of really no more ski areas being built in the region, but a lot more people with a lot more money moving into the region. And we've seen different reactions. So Crystal started out unlimited on the Icon Base Pass. Then when they were getting too many crowds, they reduced it to five days on the Icon Base Pass and went to Unlimited on the Icon Pass. And then they were still getting too many skiers. So they made it seven days on the Icon, five days in the Icon Base, and you had to buy your own Crystal Pass for 1700 Meanwhile, Stevens Pass has stayed on the Epic Local Pass, which is an incredible deal at something like $656 was the early bird price this year. Curious if you can take us behind the curtain here a little bit and and how Vale has been thinking about this and if they considered reducing Stevens Pass access on the Epic Local Pass and ultimately why Stevens and Vale decided that that access level of unlimited access in the Epic Local Pass was the right way to go for Stevens Pass. Yeah, we really haven't talked about removing Stevens Pass from the Epic Local Pass. Like I talked about, you know, our Our day in, day out skiers have terrific options between the two Stevens Pass passes and then the upgrade to the Epic Local. And again, we're just, we're prioritizing the pass holder experience. So we're really looking at other alternatives to ensure that our pass holders have a great experience when they get up here. And that's our priority. So Ellen, last thing for you here today, you mentioned earlier the lift ticket limitations that our resorts have put in at all of its ski areas for the 2022 to 23 ski season. Curious if you had to pull that lever at all at Stevens Pass and shut off day ticket sales this year and how well that that worked from your point of view and managing crowds. 
Yes, uh, we did. And it took us a little bit to figure it out and Mm -hmm. find that right place to be. But once we did, it made a huge difference. And um, we essentially stopped parking out. And it's Mm -hmm. just this amazing way that we can prioritize the pass holders who are coming up here to ski. And that will continue at Stevens Pass. Do you have a sense of how many days you actually had to turn off ticket sales? Uh, we did limit ticket sales throughout the season. And so mm-hmm. it really made a difference without sharing any specific numbers. I, I'm, I'm curious about the the calculus you use when you're, because obviously you don't know how many Epic Pass holders are going to show up on any given day, right? So how much refinement did that take to say, okay, you know, on Saturday, we're going to get X number of Epic Pass holders, X number of Epic Local Pass holders, X number of Stevens Pass Plus holders. And so we have, you know, this number of lift tickets that we can sell. How, how much tweaking did that take? And it sounds like you're fairly confident you finally got that calculus right. We certainly got better. It took a bit of tweaking. Lots of people with a ton of expertise and involved, um, including just good old fashioned, like boots on the ground, being out there and understanding flow and understanding just the arrival experience. It's just a huge area of focus throughout the winter. And so, yeah, a lot went into it and we'll continue to go into it. I in no way am saying that it's perfect at this point, but it really makes a difference for our pass holders and appreciate when we get a little bit of grace to to figure it out through some fluctuations, because we're really just trying to do the best we can for our pass holders and, and to make sure that they have a good experience. And so looking forward to continuing to master that art in the seasons to come. All right, Ellen. Well, it's got to feel great to have that first season behind you and have everything going in the right direction at Stevens Pass. I wish you the best of luck this summer with that chairlift install. I know that's always a big, exciting, but also stressful project. So looking forward to getting out there and hopefully taking that thing for a spin at some point. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to to talk about Stevens and our team. And we'd love to see you out here. Awesome. I'll take you up on that. That's Ellen Galbraith. Vice President and General Manager of Stevens Pass, Washington. Ellen, awesome job. I love the energy you're bringing to this thing, and I hope you are running Stevens Pass for a very long time. That was a lot of fun. And thank you all for listening. So many more great conversations like that coming your way, including with the leaders of China Peak, Dartmouth Skiway, Latakill, Mount Snow, Great Divide, Killington, Keystone, Cascade, Wisconsin, Cranmore, Schweitzer, Atitash, Snow River, and Mount Rose. Also, some really cool episodes that I have booked just in the past few weeks. The leaders of a pair of Boyne Giants, Sunday River, and Big Sky. And yes, I have featured both of those mountains on the podcast before, but there is so much happening that it was worth queuing them both back up for a repeat. I also recently booked a pair of really cool Midwest pods, Trollhagen, a little ski area doing big things in Wisconsin. And I'm so amped for this one. Great Bear. My first ski area interview with an operator in South Dakota. The very best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers to receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, 
I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.